Titus. We'll be going through the whole book and then following up uh, with a series on judges. And so we have an interesting movement. We look at what a healthy church is in Titus and in Judges. Uh, the idea is looking at when everyone is right. And so we look at the opposite of what we're looking at uh, in Titus. But Titus, a healthy church. And this morning, as we continue on, we're looking at the idea of being correctly ordered. And I know that there are varying definitions for something being in order. I can take a cross-section of my siblings and just look at how they keep their desks to understand that there's different definitions for being in order. Uh, Some of my siblings uh, are happy as long as their desk is cleared on a weekly basis. And by cleared, I mean they put everything into the drawers and they can shut the drawers, and so their desk is cleared. And then I have another sibling, and I thought I wouldn't tell him, but it's my brother Ed, it's the oldest one, Um, and he is starting to file papers away while he's writing on them. I've never seen a pen out of place. I've never seen a file out of place. I've never seen him write where it's not straight up and down. There's nothing is wrong uh, in his office. I'm almost afraid to walk in because then something's wrong in his office. So um, that's the difference. However, regardless of how we handle life in our desk, when it comes to taxes, every one of us has to get things correctly ordered. Uh, And interestingly enough, all seven of us boys use the same accountant. And so every one of us at some point, though we may be different in how we handle our office, in the end, we all have to conform to one standard. Because when you do your taxes, personality and personal filing are not really in mind. You must have your paperwork in order and the specifications are set by the IRS. Now, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing healthy churches. And a key part of that is for those churches to be correctly ordered. Uh, This is not referencing personality or preference, but instead stating what must be in a church for it to be a true church, for it to be healthy. And as we walk through Titus, this is one of the things I'm hoping we pick up on. Paul is not making suggestions to the church. Paul is not saying, well, if you're this type of personality, if you're this type of church, you should do this or that. But instead, he's giving the qualifications. He's saying this is, this is a must-have. This is what has to be in place. And so Paul, continuing from his greeting, talks about the structure of the churches, beginning with those qualified to fill the role of pastor or elder in the church. Uh, Yet he first gives a general admonition to Titus about getting all things in order. He says at the beginning, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. And, And we understand right out the gate that obviously things have been started, that there's things that Titus is completing, Uh, We also can understand that there's things that need to be finished. And so here is Titus left on the island to accomplish specific tasks to complete the establishment of healthy churches. He was left in charge to finish. And the idea of set in order is to set straight the doctrine and practice of those churches, making sure they were aligned with God's word, both practically and theologically. And now those actions will unfold in more detail through the rest of the letter. But here we see as Paul sets it up, he says to Titus, you're there to get things in order. 
Your job is to finish what has been started. You are to establish healthy churches. And so he sets the precedent of Titus's complete task. And then you see how Paul now highlights what is a key component, what is first in his mind of getting those things in order. So Titus, as you get things in order as an overarching job, the first thing he wants, he says, is to make sure that Titus had leadership in order. And that's how he continues forward. He says, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. In other words, I've set you to do this task, but also I want you to duplicate what I've done with you. I've set you up as a leader. I've set the standards for leadership. That's all biblically based. And now I want you to duplicate that. And it says, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop, and that's another word for elder or pastor, must be blameless. And I hope you note that Paul repeats the same word twice as an overarching principle, and that's the idea of being blameless. As the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers or to contradict liars, to contradict false doctrine. And so he's talking about the ability to teach and to confront what would be a lie. Now, there are, and, and we're going to see it in four categories, certain qualifications required of an elder, and they're going to fall into categories. We're going to see a moral qualification, family qualification. There's going to be general character qualifications and then ministerial qualifications. Yet, as I noted when I was reading this, there is an overarching need for a pastor, elder, bishop, all, again, the same exact position, different words denoting different capacities that are filled. But there's a need for a pastor to be, and he says it, blameless. And that means to be considered above reproach. The idea of being blameless is noted at the beginning of the qualifications. As we start it, we say he needs to be blameless. And actually, he gives the moral and family qualifications. And then Paul repeats, a bishop needs to be blameless. And then he gives the character qualifications and then the ministerial qualifications. So it's repeated twice in a very short period of time. And this idea of blamelessness spoke to the public reputation of the pastor and basically allowed for no justifiable accusation. And I use the word justifiable on purpose because we know people will maliciously and falsely accuse, and those accusations do not disqualify someone. However, if there's a justifiable accusation against someone, it will disqualify them from serving in church leadership. Uh, There could be no just accusation against virtue, righteousness, or godliness. An elder is to set an example by their godly lives and sound preaching and teaching that the church should be able to follow and by which they can grow. So with that concept firmly in mind, Paul's going to move to the qualifications of leadership, beginning with the moral qualifications. Now, I know you're sitting there, you're thinking, okay, great. This is a message that Kenny and Thera need to listen to, so we can just check right out of this. It's not even on our radar. Uh, The reality is it needs to be on your radar. There are a host of churches that don't hold a biblical standard for leadership. And by the way, I'm going to say this and say it up front. As you look at these qualifications, as God sets the standard 
and I would say the minimum that has to take place, he's also expecting his church, his people as a whole, to live up those qualifications as well. And so you're not off the hook, but you, you need to be diligent as we look at this because you are to hold the church to this standard, that this is what is needed. So we begin with the moral qualification. It says the husband of one wife. And people have wandered all over uh, with this one, and I'm not going to go into the weeds here. I'm just going to give you what it means in Greek, and this is what it is. It literally means a one-woman man. The point of the statement spoke to the focus of his heart. And here's what's interesting. Titus and Timothy, First and Second Timothy, those two letters replicate. They look a lot alike. And Titus is the shorter one. It's the one that seems more condensed. But what you're going to find in Titus is that Paul actually drives almost deeper at times with Titus. And he always is fixated on the heart. Uh, Not that he's not with Timothy. It's just that Titus is a very zeroed in book. There's three chapters and Paul's getting to the point every time. And so when he says the husband of one wife, he says, I want someone to be a one woman man. I want there to be a focus of his heart. Uh, One writer notes this. It refers to the singularity of a man's faithfulness to the woman who is his wife and implies inner heart again, as well as outward purity. That there is a singleness there in what he thinks and what he does in all components. The same author continued to note, it's quite possible and all too common for a husband to be married to only one woman, yet not be a one-woman man, because he has desires for other women besides his wife, or engages in impure behavior with another woman. An elder must have an unsullied, lifelong reputation for devotion to his spouse and to purity. God leaves zero room here at all. He wants the mind, he wants the heart, and he wants the actions of someone to be in line with being a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. God demands inward and outward morality, nothing less will do. So after he sets that moral tone of leadership, and and you might say, why does Paul lead with this? Why, Why lead with this qualification? And we oftentimes will look at our world And it doesn't take long as we sit in our culture to look around and and we can see a vileness in our culture. And we are in in some ways overtaken with it. There's like a wave of it. I know for myself, uh, I grew up, I say grew up in the 90s, went to college in the 90s, finished in the early, well, finished before 2000s, but right at the 2000s. And I know what the pressure was in my time. And then I look at my own kids as they're heading off to college. I look at kids that are in college and I think to myself, the pressure they face, the the perversion of this world has increased exponentially. It's just jumped up. I don't even pretend to, to say I've walked through the same thing. But even as perverse as our society is today, it is hard to imagine how wicked they were in that time. Remove all Christian influence at all and have a pagan world, they engaged in the worst immoralities. Not only did they engage in them, but they didn't even pretend that they were bad. Let's go a step further. They promoted them. I'll go all the way back to the time of Israel as they come into Canaan. And we talked about this in Leviticus. And and it says that that a father should not allow his daughters to become 
prostitutes and you think, how in the world would this happen? And then you realize that the Hebrew word for prostitute is holy girl. And you recognize that they not only condoned the behavior, they made it into something elevated. And we see our society tracking that way. But why does Paul give the moral qualification first? Because Titus was walking into a cesspool of a culture. And actually around the world, there was a cesspool of a culture. And so he's diving in and saying, no, I don't, we don't want to see this at all. I want the heart of the man. I want the thoughts of the man. And I want the actions of the man to line up with what God wants. So setting a moral tone, Paul moves now to a family qualification. Having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Now, this Greek word translated children, whenever we see that word, we think child, we think young, we think junior age, we think going to a certain type of camp, but it's a word for any age child. Paul uses the same word to say that Titus is my child in the faith. That doesn't mean that Titus is a child, he's an adult, but he would be Paul's spiritual child, and that's forever, right? If you're parents of adult children, you know they're always your children, but they're now adults. And and interestingly enough, here in Titus, the implication of a faithful child, and it's the accusations, not accused of riot or unruly, really folks in riot, is dealing with adult or nearly adult children. And I want to explain why. Faithful children is referencing believing children. So it's not talking just faithful to the family or faithful to their parents, but instead it means faithful children, children that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I want us to note something here. The expectation and priority for us all are our children and their eternal home. And that's one thing. It's not a bat with which God has instructed the church to beat people out of ministry or knock them down, but instead it's saying something to all these people that the family is going to get priority here. Now, we know that a young child can believe and even be unruly. If you have children, you know they get unruly. Uh, You just look around, you know that. However, the idea of rioting, and this is why uh, most commentators are why, why I think it leans towards adult children, because the idea of rioting It's possibly translated dissipation or debauchery, and debauchery is a really good word uh, for this, uh, referred to behavior that was linked to a drunken revelry at pagan feasts. It was a very specific term. If you have kids accused of, and the idea is basically getting wild at a pagan party, and it spoke to a personal unruliness Uh, a kind of settled decision in the heart of an individual and a refusal to acknowledge or submit to proper authority, but it was not pointing specifically to parental authority at this point. And so this is not a behavior that young children can really truly be guilty of in the normal sense of the word, because the normal sense of the word implies a settled adult or nearing adult mind. And so I put my notes, it dealt with a teen to adult children. So as we hope we can see, the admonition to Titus focuses on the heart of the child. It focuses us on the need to be an eternal light to our families. Now, suddenly you say, wait a second, there's the qualifications for an elder. But, but keep in mind, as Paul, uh, as Paul is writing to Titus, as he's coming into the churches, and you'll see later in the letter, this is also a priority that he wants in the church that our families are 
a priority. Why give these qualifications? And I think there's multiple reasons, and I want to highlight just two of them. One, someone that has unbelieving children or believing children that are accused of riot uh, will not necessarily have credibility to lead in the church and should not have the confidence of the church to evangelize and edify. If you remember from the first message on a healthy church, the calling for that church, as, we, as Paul was focused in, it was on evangelizing, edifying. It was, it was reaching the lost and growing the church. Now, it is possible to have unbelieving young children too young to understand the gospel. And in that case, the standard of Timothy applies. And if you read Timothy, he'll say, you need to manage your household well. And so oftentimes we will slip over to the Timothy and we'll overlay that requirement into Titus. But Titus is talking about the heart. Titus is always going to that deeper issue. It's a shorter letter and in ways more direct, if that's a better wording there, a direct way of saying something. Second, and this is what I think Paul is trying to highlight that he's bringing out to them. We see here a priority for one's children. Why why make this statement about the family? And, And oftentimes we grow up in a culture and so we assume that around the world. I was fascinated. I was talking to one of my brothers and he's traveled to India quite a bit. And he shared with me something in his experience that he noticed that the pastors he was working with had a tendency to leave family aside, that they would, they would move on, uh, that their wife and children wouldn't even be involved in the church. But it wasn't a, a thing that they were ashamed of or something that they were worried about. It was this push to the side or push down. And it started dawning on me, and then I'm reading Titus, how it's very easy to deprioritize your family. And what's interesting is Paul sets it in, and I wrote this down, family is never to be the sad byproduct of a focused ministry, but instead are the priority of a focused ministry. A pastor or elder should never have to apologize for focusing in on his children and on his family because God says, make that a focus and priority. Now, let's tie this to the whole church. A pastor is supposed to be exemplifying what God wants from his church. So what does God want believers to do? Focus on your family. Make them a priority. Why? Because God prioritizes our children so much that we're disqualified from public church leadership if they're unreached or unsaved. Why? So we never lose sight of the priority of the family. What is perceived oftentimes as a negative, what can be perceived as a way to cut out or hurt, like, well, I'm going to start condemning his kids. I'm going to start making judgment calls there. That's not what, that's not the drive behind this. But in many cultures, the family's left behind, especially in this culture. They would go off and do their life. Greek culture, you look at some of those, if if you watch Greek warrior movies and you think, see these warriors, they were not family men. They were brought home and they had a wife and children, but that was not family at all. They were there just to raise more Greek warriors. They lived in barracks. They fought. They did everything separate from it. Family was not prioritized. This culture has that leaning. Family's not important. It's not what matters. And Paul says it matters. It matters a lot, he says. We're expecting you 
to lose the immorality of your culture, not have it taint you at all. We're expecting you to prioritize your family. God's set-apart servant must be morally pure, a one-woman man, and he must evangelize and edify his family with unwavering determination as these are bedrock qualifications for serving in the role of pastor-elder. However, this is not the end of what is expected. So after stating the idea of being blameless again, he now moves to the next uh, qualifications, and these are general character qualifications. So you have a list of, I think it's 11 total, five not, six do's that you're supposed to do, and they're all lumped into this idea of who you are as a person internally. The background is these begin, though, with what is the nots. Don't be this as a leader. Uh, and any believer. And it starts off, and I'm going to move through them quickly. There should not be any self-willed. And this is speaking here of arrogant self-interest that cares nothing for others in the assertion of self. It shows a disregard for God's will and purpose by placing their own above it. You know, the root of this one is Satan's sin of pride. My interest above anyone else's, what I want more important than anyone else. And, and so Paul starts again with this idea, do not let the most base of sins be a part of your life. Sadly, I've seen a host of preachers who are very self-willed. It's cloaked in ministry. It's covered in what they say they're doing for the church, but it's all about what they want and has no regard for God's people or the damage that it will cause. They're not soon angry quick-tempered or quick-emotioned. And it's speaking of a propensity for anger. It's not a single outburst, so that's not good either. It's a, it's a, a typifies your life. You're quickly fired up. I was reading through Titus. This is three months ago. I started reading through Titus. It might have been at the, yeah, but the beginning of the year. And that word kept hitting me. Like I couldn't learn anything about Titus until I dealt with this idea of being quick-emotioned. To, to firing off quickly. And as you look at your life, uh, don't just get fixated on the idea of angry. How are you responding to things? Is it quick? Is our emotions come to the forefront? And you might say, well, I'm, I'm not an angry person. I'm not like you, Kenny. I'm not angry. I'm, I, well, you might be quickly depressed. You might be quickly discouraged. You might be quickly frustrated. You might be quickly irritated. If you're quick anything, God says, no, that's not what we're looking for. Not given to wine. This is speaking of an addiction to wine. Allowing alcohol in any way to cloud one's thinking or judgment. And the idea here is to be proactive in preventing the possibility. Scripture is very clear. Don't have your mind tainted. Don't have your mind controlled by anything else. And so specifically as a leader, you should not allow wine, alcohol, to taint your brain, to taint your thinking. And you might say to me, well, what was their limit? It was about half of ours, by the way. So the Greek culture, pagan culture, secular culture wrote on this. And basically, through the deductions they make, they applied the principle of if you're halfway to what you can legally drive here, you were tainted. Your brain was affected. And what is Scripture telling us? Don't have anything else influencing your mind. The next one always makes me smile, not a striker. And the word literally is puncher, pugnacious, you fight. So you deal with your problems by punching someone in the face. That's a little bit there. And you might think quickly, well, I'm not punching people on a daily basis, so I'm doing fine. Uh, but really, it speaks to a person that doesn't take part in meanness, abusiveness, or retaliation. 
Because we can get our way by force of personality. And so this is not speaking of self-defense. A lot of people take it way too far. Well, not a striker, so he can't defend himself. No, that's ridiculous. It doesn't speak to that at all. It's speaking again to the heart. How do you settle your disputes? Is it with violence, using fists, rocks, or a club? Are you the person who tends to start a fight with someone? By the way, it's also not just referencing the physical fight. It also can be the verbal abuse that comes out of us, the verbal manner of settling a dispute that strikes. And we know exactly what that is, right? Oh, it's just talking to them. No, you weren't. You were attacking them. You were pummeling them with your words. That is a verbal striker. And it can be equally as painful or even worse. And finally, it says not seeking filthy lucre. And that's being greedy for gain or seeking wealth or prosperity at any cost. This one will hit. Sadly, I know Christian business people that will say, well, we leave the church at church. When we do business, we do business however we need to do business. No, you don't. You're a liar. That's not what God says at all. That's not the standard God holds Christians to. If you're getting wealthy at any cost, if you make some justifiable way to gain wealth by cheating in any way, shape, or form, you've broken what God says a Christian business person should do. You should never have wealth at any cost. What's interesting is in the first decades of the church, so right out the gate, the church starts Acts 2, before they can blink, a couple decades go by, false teachers were already coming in to make an easy living off of the church, fleecing the flock, and that's never to be the mindset of a pastor or an elder. You might think, well, before they had TV, how do they have TV evangelists? They had people send money. They started out the gate. This is not a new thing at all. This is something that's been going on since church started. I still remember uh, I was in Nicaragua and I was listening to a, uh, someone was telling about a conversation. So all the leaders in Central America had, had kind of come together. This was the 70s or the early 80s. And according to this person, while they were meeting in a more casual setting, uh, these leaders, and really most of them were dictators of some sort, started bragging about the farms they owned in their countries. And so one's like, well, I own this big of a farm with this many cattle and this many things. And, and interesting enough, the the Nicaraguan dictator boldly asserted this, all of Nicaragua is my farm. And I thought about that. Sadly, too many pastors and elders think the same of the churches under their care. The church is never to be the leader's playground or personal farm. It's not something they manipulate for their advancement. Now, it doesn't negate pay for an elder. First Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. But it is a clear prohibition for elders not to use a church for their own agenda and their own schemes of financial gain. And I, I put in pencil at the end, I was reading th- through this, the church is also not a platform for their ministerial empire. What I've noticed in the last decade are so many popular preachers, and I'm not talking popular like they have a radio show. I'm talking popular, as I can see around in this area, and they're getting churches that are growing. And I watch them network in a way that allows them to build their empire. And you talk to them, and you know right away they're building their own empire. It doesn't mean that if a ministry is growing, it's bad, but I watch them put all the pieces together for gain. That's not a healthy church. 
God is not pleased with that type of leadership at all. And what we're starting to see, I hope, is a balanced person, a Christian, emotionally controlled by the reality of who they are in Christ, exemplifying what God desires from them and through them. These servants will not get caught up in even the accepted propensities of the world, nor should any believer. Yet character is never defined by what you don't do or what's not present. And so Paul continues with what character should be present. And he says this, they're to be hospitable, a lover of hospitality. And the concept, as one author aptly states, is this, that that a pastor elder freely offers his time, his resources, and his encouragement to meet the needs of others. And I wanted to put a practical concept down here. One of the, oftentimes people ask, oh, when can we connect? When we get together? And I always say, hey, the church is open. The doors are unlocked. We're here and you can stop by. Why do we say that? Because it's a biblical expectation that a healthy church will have leadership that is attainable, that, that can be talked to, that doesn't have an elite status or a, a distant status. I put here, a church with distant and unconnectable leadership is not how a church was designed by God. It will never result in a truly healthy church. You must be able to connect with the pastors and elders of the church. A truly called pastor desires to walk with God's people, to counsel and care for them, because that is the role of the under-shepherd. That is the role given by God to them to do. They are supposed to walk with the church. Pastors are to be, it says, to desire good, lover of good men. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. The thoughts and pursuit of an elder are for what is godly and virtuous. He is known as a friend of what is good. Leaders are to be sober. Uh, The idea here is sensible, in charge of their mind, in control of what they think and do. And again, as I mentioned, on the knots, as we walk into what they should have, everything is speaking to an emotionally balanced Christian. This is what a Christian is supposed to be, shaped by who they are in Christ and not looking and responding as the world oftentimes would permit. Our world permits people to blow off the handle. As long as you blow up over the thing the world's happy about, you're fine. You can flip out over anything the world is happy with. God says, no, you don't. There's a balance there. There's a control. You're sensible. The circumstances of this world, it's immorality, it's silly pursuits, what it's okay with. Do not distract him or allure him. It goes on, the pastor must be just which speaks to what is proper and right. The idea, if you want to note it in your Bible, is fairness, committing to seeing what is just and equitable. There are a host of social circumstances we're facing today. There have been horrific responses by pastors, wrong responses. They seemed right, and the world's really happy with them, but it's wrong. And then you have some that come where the pendulum swings the other way. And in response to this person who's completely wrong over here and looks like the world, boom, it swings over here. And and they're on the other extreme, neither of which are right because you're supposed to be just and equitable. You're supposed to do what is right. I don't respond to how the world answers this cause with a 
knee-jerk the other way, but instead we are supposed to maintain what God wants done here. What is fair? What is right? What is equitable? What is just? And again, we just finished Leviticus, so I reference this all the time. You read through Leviticus and you see that. God commands the nation of Israel, and I find this fascinating. They're coming out of slavery, by the way, 400 plus years of slavery, and it was no light task for them. It was horrific. And what is God's first command when you're dealing with the foreigner? Treat them the same as you treat citizens or Israelites. Fair and equitable. I share that because God's not changed his mind from all the way back then in the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, and right on into our culture. God has said we are to be fair and equitable, called to also be holy Now, this word in Greek is actually different than the typical one that's translated holy, but carries a lot of the same implications. The idea, though, or the the heart of this word is to be devout, meaning you're true to divine direction and purpose. You are genuinely obedient to God's will. So, yes, it carries the weight of holy, but it's, it's diving into your connection to what God wants. How true are you to what God says to do his direction, his purpose. And then in everything, the pastor is seen as temperate, and that word is self-controlled. This speaks to both his actions and motivations for his actions. One writer remarks, he lives an exemplary life on the outside because, and this is the critical part of this word, because he submits to the Holy Spirit's control on the inside. This is not a personality trait, and this is the important thing. We start at the beginning. No matter how your personality is and what your preference is and and how you walk and talk and work, this is not about personality. It's about someone who is, and we'll see this, controlled by God, controlled by the Holy Spirit. It is the calling for every believer. It speaks more than just outward actions to what people see. It connects to his heart and how he keeps his private, and I call his eyes only life, in line with the Lord. MacArthur notes this, if he acts right only when others are looking, he is doing just that, acting. God's not looking for an actor. He's not looking for a polished presenter on stage. He's not looking for someone who's necessarily charismatic. I'm not saying you can't be charismatic. You can't have personality. You can't be loud or soft-spoken, whatever it may be. But that's not what God's looking for. And he's not looking for someone to walk up here and act. He's looking for someone to be truly self-controlled. And by self-controlled, because self is controlled by the Holy Spirit, then you're Holy Spirit-controlled. A healthy church has leadership that functions they are. This is all about being, right? When I talk about who you are, a one woman man, it's who you are. When you talk about reaching your children, it's, it's who you are as a father coming in, stepping in, and, and, and reaching the family. I'm talking about your characteristics, very specific here. There's 11 things. It's who you are and being who God desires. And hopefully we can see clearly that God is not asking us to be our own purpose, person, but instead to be his person. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. What did Paul say at the beginning? He is the servant and apostle. He is the slave at the lowest level of society, and he is the messenger of Christ. In other words, he said from the beginning, I'm not my own man. And I hope what we can see as Paul goes into details following in, all these character qualifications speak to the fact that we're not our own person. 
but instead we are to be his person. We are not the same as we would be without Christ. We're not who we would be regardless of what we believe. We are who we are because of who we believe in, because of who our faith is in. The reality is God calls all believers to this same standard. His healthy church will be filled with those following Christ's call in Matthew 5, 48, which is made to all believers. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. In other words, be like me. God's not calling you to be your best you. There is no best you. God doesn't need Kenny's personality in the world. What he needs is my heart given over to him, and I become like him. You are called to be his person, not your own. The pastor elder of a healthy church has a list of things to be, a list that needs to be applied, really, as I mentioned, to all believers as we serve our Savior as his church. These are, however, what someone must be to serve his church in the role of pastor. And as I mentioned these qualifications, we, we start thinking, what about failure? What about stumbling? What about falling? We're not perfect. And I want to mention this. Failure is not an unforgivable sin or a loss of salvation, but it is a disqualification for this role in God's church. Yet there is a qualification for service that involves doing. So we've talked a lot about the heart what is accomplished? What, what should be seen? What's the driving uh, professional category now? What, what is the job description, so to speak? And it involves the calling and empowering of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the function of that pastoral role. And Paul wraps up his list here to Titus with what I call the ministerial qualification. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And I want you to realize something, and, and some of the things we talked about in the intro as well, and last week, this qualification centers on the Word of God, on sound doctrine that is to be used to teach and rebuke. However, Paul begins with the admonition to be faithful to God's Word, holding fast the faithful Word as he hath been taught. He must be unwaveringly loyal to Scripture. And this call is to cling with fervency. This is not a casual grip on God's Word. This is a clenching grip on God's Word. It's the tireless diligence to Scripture. And I'm going to note something, and this is where I think the church oftentimes wandered. This diligence is reserved strictly for God's Word. In Acts, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and that teaching is recorded in what we now know as the New Testament. Now, along with this unswayed loyalty to Scripture, the pastor of a healthy church will be consistently applying God's Word by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. He will be teaching. And what is he teaching? It says sound doctrine, and he's speaking to how he preaches and teaches in the church to believers, the true church. But it's helpful to understand what sound is referring to. The word sound speaks to being healthy or wholesome. We get our word hygiene from the Greek word for the word sound. What protects and preserves life. So the pastor is teaching doctrine that protects and preserves the spiritual health of the church. What is Hygienic, what is right, what is clean, what is healthy, what grows. That means, 
As I mentioned last week, only what is in Scripture, verse by verse, precept upon precept. This is what Ezra did. Pastors are going to study God's law, practice it, and teach it. We will, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. In other words, never quitting. The, the, the emphasis, the foundation of Scripture, the movement from Scripture, we're not growing past that. It's not just a base qualification. It is the only qualification. Church leaders know that the Bible is the divinely revealed source of truth. It is not just a resource for truth. Our world sees this as a resource, a religious resource. You can get some truth from this. You could go to this for truth. And, and what, God, what Paul is writing to Titus is the person who holds fast to Scripture realize that this is the only truth. There is no other truth. It's not a resource. It is the source. And as pastors impart God's truth in the positive context of teaching, they're also to be prepared to be rebuking. That's what the word convince the gainsayers. The word literally in Greek is to speak against. And I'll mispronounce it, but it's anti-lego, which is speak, I say, against what they say. I wanted you to hear that definition because I want you to understand we soft sell it way too much. Elders are called to confront the perversion of this world, to confront the doctrinal contortions of false teachers, to confront the comfortable lies of well-meaning preachers, lies that play to a certain way or a certain position. A healthy church will have leadership that allows nothing to attain the same level as God's Word, even things that we may see as positives. If anything or anyone is elevated to the height of God's Word, we are to be jealously defending the exclusive right of Scripture. We cannot let anything wander in here because someone may affirm the inerrancy of Scripture and still pervert or misunderstand it. They may claim that this is God's Word and still run around it or miss it. We are to defend its exclusive right of authority and the source of truth. The ministerial qualification of a pastor elder of a truly biblically healthy church is deep exclusive loyalty to Scripture, and a determined and consistent application of God's Word in His teaching and rebuking. This will be seen in the practice of His calling. As John Stott notes, he says this, the systematic preaching of the Word is impossible without the systematic study of it. But I want to make a note here. A healthy church is also going to be filled with true believers equally loyal to God's Word and determined to see that word applied both in their lives and in the lives of others. You want a healthy church? It's filled with believers that say, I want to be convicted by what God's word says. I want to have my toes stepped on. I want to make sure that I am conforming my life to what he says. I'm not looking for a loophole how I can have my life and have the Bible. And when the Bible conflicts with my life, well, then by golly, I'm going to make sure that the Bible can be twisted so that I can have my life. God is not looking for loophole churches. He's looking for churches that say, no, we want the Word of God. We're loyal to the Word of God. We expect the Word of God to be preached and taught, and we expect it to be applied to our lives, and we want to see our lives altered by God's Word, and we want to see that 
life-altering change in others as well. We want to see that change in the person making the preaching. We should read through Titus. And as I mentioned earlier, I couldn't get over one word. It's not that I can't make my mind move on from one word. It just, I would read all of Titus and I typically do not struggle picking up information. And then I would walk away and all I could think about was the idea of quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. Why? Why is that there? Well, because God was dealing with my heart and life. Don't be quick emotion. How am I responding to situations? And so for a period of a couple weeks, as I'm reading through Titus, this is hitting home. That's the application of God's word changing my life. You should expect that. You should demand that from us as we preach and teach. What we teach should be changing our lives, and you should expect it to change yours. You should be looking around expecting to see others change. It should bother you when it doesn't. A healthy church is correctly ordered, and that ordering begins with leadership. Now, Christ's whole body is called to the same moral, family, and character qualifications. And as I just mentioned, the same expectation and loyalty to Scripture, you're called to that as well. You should desire it alone, and you should desire that it alone has this influence on your life and the life of others. But these qualifications must begin with those privileged to be as under-shepherds, called to the role of preaching and teaching in his church. It is a demand for the whole church, but you're not going to have a church filled with people with these moral, with these family, with these character, and with these ministerial qualifications if the leadership of the church is allowed to wander off. Now, there's no implication in Scripture that these qualifications are easy, nor that failure to maintain them results in lost redemption or lesser than Christianity. That's not the goal. It's never been there to beat someone down, to make them feel lower, to make them feel less. Those who truly seek forgiveness and restoration are promised that, but they're not to be the pastors or elders of the church. There's an error that I sadly see applied too often today. It came up, and I won't name the person specifically, but there was an individual that fell into gross immorality in a very large church in New York City. After a period of time, he now is pastoring yet another church on the other side of the country, and this is the church's answer to it. Um, forgiveness and time are cited as the reasons for it. He's sorry for what he's done, and enough time has passed that we can give him this new gig because he's popular and he's charismatic and we want that for our church. And I put a note here, and I use this illustration on purpose. God's not pleased. And I can tell you with certainty, that church is not healthy. And that church will never be healthy. I don't care how popular he is. And I don't care how many people end up showing up to hear him talk. Because they're showing up to hear him talk. They're showing up to see his swagger and his movement and his personality but they have not applied the biblical standard. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. These are not personality questions, and these are not how you personally file your paperwork. This is what God demands from a healthy church. A healthy church recognizes what God desires and strives to apply that diligently. They are not looking for loopholes, but instead seeking his guidelines and desiring his qualification. So as his church, we have one question that we're going to ask ourselves. Are we going to follow his qualifications or will we just come up with our own? Let's pray together. Hey, Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to dive into your word as we walk through what it takes to be a healthy church. I hope that we can feel...
convicted that we can understand as, as you call leadership in your church and you uh, equip that leadership to serve you, that we will constantly uh, be serving as you have qualified, as you have shown us. That as we struggle maybe with some of these things, as we see a propensity in our life, that we know we're not perfect, Lord, that we seek to fulfill your qualifications, that we recognize what must be done and how we must serve. As a church, I ask that we lock in to your qualifications. I hope we understand that you demand of the whole church morality, that your expectation is that we are not like our world. We are not engaged in the wickedness and perversion just because they're okay with what goes on, that they emphasize what goes on, that they celebrate what goes on. We as your people will not do that. I hope that we will not lose sight of our families, that we recognize that you've given us a responsibility, that children are a blessing from you, and that we are given the opportunity to be the closest light that they have. Help us to be ambassadors in our own homes, to share that light, to own that priority, to never let that go. I hope that all the parents here understand that. I hope all the grandparents understand it. To constantly be focused on being the light of the gospel in their own families, recognizing the opportunity you have given to us. We understand uh, that you will convert the sinner, that you will call the sinner, but you've asked us to be your ambassadors, to share your light, to preach your gospel, to tirelessly um, proclaim your truth, to be focused on our family's eternity. I hope that as we look at these characteristics and understand uh, what you've laid out here, that we recognize that it began with not following the sin of Satan, to be so self-willed that you neglect anyone else because your pride of self overtakes you. Help us to, uh, both as leadership and as a church, to not engage in that. And as we work all the way through, I hope that we land as balanced Christians, not because we compromise, but because we are shaped by who we are in you, that we are not our own people, but instead we are your people. And we will respond as you have called us to respond and give us a fervency for your word, Lord. You call us to hold fast your word, to make it exclusively the authority. Help us not to be swayed by false teaching, uh, by positions and ways and preferences, but instead uh, to rest and stand firmly on your word, never adding to it at all, never taking away, but instead uh, seeking to fulfill the guidelines you have given us. In your precious and holy name, amen.